Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. It's officially summer, and that means it's time for our tradition at Here's the Thing, where our staff shares their favorite episodes in our summer staff series. Next up is our engineer, Frank Imperial. Thanks, Alec. When trying to choose one of my favorite episodes from the archives, it didn't take long to land on Mick Fleetwood, the drummer of Fleetwood Mac. It's one of the most popular episodes in our history, with good reason. Here's Alex's 2021 conversation with Mick Fleetwood. That is, of course, Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. Thanks to a TikTok of some guy on a skateboard who goes by the name Dogface lip-syncing to this song and his 72 million views, Fleetwood Mac's album Rumors broke through Rolling Stone's top 100 list again last year, more than 40 years after its release. My guest today is Mick Fleetwood, a founding member of Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood Mac existed for nearly a decade before the lineup we think of today with Mick Fleetwood, John McVie, Lindsey Buckingham, Christine McVie, and Stevie Nicks. But when Fleetwood Mac formed in London in the late 1960s, it was Peter Green's idea. Well, I would be remiss. Peter Green started Fleetwood Mac, Mm -hmm. the original guitar player. I was at his right-hand side. John McVie, all of us had played in a band called John Mayles Blues Breakers. Eric... Mick Taylor, Peter Green, they all, and I'm saying that because they would represent great guitar players that came out of that band that have more than made their mark in my world. And so Peter asked me to play drums, and I already had played with them in a, in a funny band with Rod Stewart for a short while, so we won't go into that. So it was, a, it was really a team of people that Peter, John McVie especially, came out of a pedigree which was absolute devotion to an art form, the blues, and really all our heroes were American blues artists, and you are well aware, I can tell, 
about the irony of of a bunch of funny little white kids in England really preserving an art form that had long since been, you know, uh, I won't use the bad word, but, you know, pooped on by the American sort of glossing over of something that was so evident. So we were all from that uh, framework. And when we formed Fleetwood Mac, it was all about our lovely semi-innocent way of emulating our heroes. And if you listen to the first few uh, albums that we made before Peter especially started really writing, like when you look at early Rolling Stones, it's Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry. And with anyone, you see the development into self-expression. And that's what transpired afterward. But the original band was all about that and a little team of, of people sharing something and having a lot of fun with it, you know, creatively that turned into something a little bit more than we ever could have possibly have imagined. The year that you formed the band with Green, what year was that? 1967, Windsor Jazz Festival. And uh, the band was called Fleetwood Mac by Peter Green, who could have very easily become the Jeff Beck or the, the Jimmy Page or the Eric Clapton gunslinger guitar player. That's a whole nother story. Is, uh, is a lovely story and an attribute to Peter's generosity we played the Windsor Jazz Festival intending, as you can tell with the name Fleetwood Mac, the name was my name and, and John McVie, which Peter chose. And John was still playing in, in John Mayles Blues Breakers on the same show, watched the band he's supposed to be in from, from the side of the stage. And uh, about three months later, he joined. He's a Scotsman, so he's very thrifty with, with whatever amount of money he does have so when we had enough gigs, he said, well, I'm ready to join, which was, of course... Right. When you've made it worth my while. Yeah, <laughs> when you make it worth my while. And I know there'll be no net loss in my income by joining you. I'll, be, I'll, I'll meet you there at the club. Yeah, and that's what happened. And when you say that uh, Green could have been in this pantheon of great guitar players, was it something he didn't want? Did he did not want that level of fame and that level of attention? No, it, it, it was very evident. And the end story, which, of course, went into... A very changed person. He was my dearest of dearest of friends uh, and my mentor. You know, he he gave me so much encouragement as a player and super fun person, but unbelievably deep down, way more sensitive than a bunch of chaps, including himself, had ever realized. And he eventually became sick and and so came to a sort of journey that was, for a while, was a li a living tragedy for me, uh, selfishly. But then you learned to accept him as he turned out. But back then, everything he did was about being just really generous. And I read an article after, you know, you, you think, well, what was the real story? And a for instance would be that someone asked him, why was the band called Fleetwood Mac? And he said, well, I figured at that point I'd broken up with my lovely girlfriend, Jenny, who I later married. And I played with Peter, and he had his eyes on another drummer, uh, as it turned out. And he said, why did you pick Mick? And of course, <laughs> my little less than self would, would have thought, well, maybe you thought I was a good drummer, you know. <laughs> and what it was, he said, I wanted Mick to play the drums. because I got so fed up with seeing him so sad that I thought it would give him something to do. And I thought that was the greatest thing that you could ever hear from a lovely friend. 
And that really sums it up about how it was not about him. And he created a platform which served me well. My father uh, was an Air Force chap, so the word uh, to serve, to serve well, that's what I think I learned to do with all of how the madness of this band and, and, and the incarnates of just, are you kidding me? If you wrote this down, you say, it's not possible this bunch could possibly have survived with all of the ups and downs and character changes and changing the script as you go along, and yet there's still a story. Peter started that and handed that to me, I think, when he, he welcomed everyone, including me, uh, Danny Kerwin, who joined the original band, Jeremy Spencer, they were all there so that Peter did not want to be King Tut in, in the front there, taking all the limelight. And I think it was way more uh, meaningful in sense of, of where he came from. It's just he wanted to be in a band, and he created that band and made sure the band was not called Peter Green's anything, because he could have very easily. And I always thank him for that. The name Fleetwood Mac, he was asked, and he said, well, I always thought that I would probably move on, which he did under very strange circumstances, um, unfortunately for us. And he said, I wanted Mick and John to have something. And I saw and heard this interview years and years and years and years later. It's like finding out a family relative will tell you what the real story was. And sometimes it's mind-blowing, and sometimes it's hugely moving and gratifying to hear, and that was one of them. You didn't start drumming till you were 13, correct? Officially, but yeah, I would say I started hitting furniture when I was about eight. <laughs> what changed when you were 13 that you were like, I want to drum now on a serious level? What changed? Oh, I, I would think that, uh, first of all, being completely on some shape or form completely dyslexic and had, had not one iota of any academic prowess whatsoever at school. So there I was struggling with great parents. So I never felt threatened or less than that I couldn't, I still don't know my alphabet or, I mean, if my whole family was lined up, God forbid, and said, you don't have to. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know, but a lot of people say, you're kidding me. It's a lot of people say about what I do when I play drums. I said, well, actually, I sort of really don't know what I'm doing to tell you the real truth. And, and they go, well, it's not. Then they start arguing with you. you. Go, well, how can you do that? You're full of shit. You know, you know. I said, no, no, I, it just comes out. I have no idea. So I blundered into it. But I, I would think that the love and the one thing that I could grab onto was the fact that I, for some reason, I used to play tapping on furniture, which I mentioned to you, back in Norway when I was much younger. And we'd traveled to Egypt. So I, I remember these leather little funny, we call them tuftos or something, things stuffed with newspaper that sound really cool. They're leather, leather sort of ad ottoman things. And, and I, mom would listen to the home service and do the cleaning and have a Dubonnet and have a one cigarette of the day. This is when I was probably about six or seven in Norway. And I remember listening to the radio and tapping on, I don't know why, on furniture, but daddy used to tap on, on coins and do military things in his pocket. And he would play bottles with water in them at parties. So I vaguely remember that. I don't think that's why I did it, but I think my quantum leap was a blessing. And it was like a 
divine intervention of sorts, that the one thing I love doing, I had this obsession with collecting drum catalogs and fantasies of gold and sparkling instruments that you know were my dream. So at boarding school, the last thing I did, I had this whole package filled with brochures that opened one to the other. And I think I saw my way out. And when dad said, do you want to go to college? And he didn't have any money, but he was obviously making it available for me. And with tears in our eyes, I said, Daddy, I want to go to London and play drums. And by that time, I'd had uh, my little drum kit, almost a toy drum kit uh, in the house. And I think it was my learning disability that drove me by some happenstance. Both my sisters went into the arts. One was a very fine actress, uh, Susan with the Royal Shakespeare Company, and, and my elder sister was uh, an art student at the Polytechnic. So we were all completely academically useless. So I had the blessing that mum and dad said, then, my God, it's probably the only one thing he really thinks he can do. And that was- And they encouraged you. Absolutely. Just, I, I, I had complete and utter, not one iota of any cynicism whatsoever. And they sent me off with a drum kit to London, wrapped in a blanket. My father wrote a poem about it. McFleetwood. If you love conversations with iconic musicians who also happen to be members of long-lasting bands, be sure to check out my conversation with The Who's legendary frontman, Roger Daltrey, from our archives. Daltrey talked about the first time he swung a microphone around on stage. No one taught me. I just, I got. You just did it yourself. I used to, once I went into the free form in the early days, the late sixties, it just came out of boredom. I was, you know, I couldn't stand there and be like Robert Plant. I wasn't cool enough. I just needed to dance, but I didn't want to dance like a an ordinary dancer. So I just started to play with it, and it just got bigger and bigger. To channel and bigger the energy and, and channel the energy, and then the Pete started jumping and that legendary jump of his. <laughs> Windmilling. I mean, he's like a kangaroo, wasn't he? <laughs> And uh, it, but the whole thing was kind of in with the music. It became like a ballet, didn't it? It was kind of extraordinary. Hear the rest of my conversation with Roger Daltrey at heresthething.org. After the break, we talk about the women who became essential to the group's sound. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hello, 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics, in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. That's Christine McVie performing Songbird. McVie joined Fleetwood Mac in 1970 when Peter Green left. She'd married John McVie a couple of years before. Lindsay Buckingham and Stevie Nicks joined in 1975. I wanted to know if, when Christine joined, there was any pressure to include a woman. Well, Christine, for sure, and any, any lovely lady out there would not take it wrong. She was a musician. And she was a great piano player. And her experience was already integrated with being, I'm a player. And it was nothing of the sort that it was a woman or a man. It was just who you are and what you do. Truly, it was that. And she cherishes that to this day because we call her the rock. You know, she's like, she doesn't rely on anything other than no prissy stuff, I am who I am, and am I delivering what you need? And she has that respect. So she came into the band as a player, literally. And, and there was no thought. She, she knew John, which had nothing to do with it, apart from... Is your maiden that, name uh, really perfect? Is it Christine Perfect? It, yeah, and John would say she was perfect before she married me. <laughs> <laughs> well done, John. <laughs> so that was really it. It was not about... Having a lady in the band. Was it about we need a girl? No, Wasn't it was about all. a really, really great musician, bloody good piano player. Let me let me just say, stuff. let me interject this because it's true, which is that in that world, there is nobody 
who casts a spell on me, like Christine McVie. I mean, I love okay. her singing beyond belief. I mean, she just she does something to me that I can't even describe. She's, her, her singing is so beautiful, you know. Well, and so I, she, I can second that. Right, right, right. So she's with you in the band, and then you decide to have another woman join the band. So Buckingham, you ask him to join the band? Yeah, but Bob Welch uh, had left at rather short notice, and I knew Bob extremely well. Really lovely, hugely interesting chap. So he left, but prior to that, I'd been in uh, the studio, Sound City, to try and find a, a studio to record the next album with Fleetwood Mac. He leaves, and I meet Stevie and Lindsay after the fact, having heard uh, Keith played to demonstrate the studio, part of a Buckham Nick, Nick's uh, album that he'd made with them, uh, the, the album. And then Bob left, and I made a phone call, and I said, you know that music you were playing? Who, what, how? And you're right. I was looking for a guitar player, so I forever have Stevie to this day in a, a comedic sense, but always with a knife in my back. <laughs> it wasn't really me that you wanted. It was Lindsay, which was true. And in very short form, Lindsay made it very clear that if he was to join, which was not a slam dunk at the beginning, because he, he and Stevie were thinking about going forward in their own world, and she actually persuaded Lindsay uh, to join the band, pretty much. Uh, she got fed up with waiting tables and stuff. So she came somewhat originally by default, and yet not, because the real story is it was very evident early on, although Stevie said, you know, loves to dig at me, uh, was that, first of all, Lindsay was incredibly loyal to her, and I'm not going to do this without her boom, over. Then it didn't take a rocket scientist to realize these songs, these beautiful songs were co-written by both Lindsay and Stevie. And then you listen to the vocal blend, which is none other than going like, when you hear the Everly Brothers, you go like, oh my God, that this joined at the hip. And they came in short form into the band as a duo, which was a merciful decision when I look back, that Lindsay did not desert her uh, and, and said, I'm here, but I'm here with my partner. And that's how that happened. I've asked other very successful artists, such as yourself in the music world, what does a producer do for you? When you're in a studio and you're making a record, who's the decider? Who decides what take, what track, yeah. this vocal track, this drum track, whatever. But when you had a collaboration with a producer that helped you, what did they do for you? Well, I think the simple form would be that we as a band, no matter what, which is not always the case, and it's not always the magic formula. A lot of people just totally excel by being guided and permanently told what to do and have a, a mirror that's a reflection from another aspect, another interpretation of really who, who they truly are. And that's fine. That was so not how we grew up into and blustered into what we we're doing. So I would say that anyone that, that's worked, uh, including Keith, Mike Vernon, the first record producer, was probably the most influential that he, he was a blues fanatic. And he, he ran that little label we were on called Blue Horizon. And after that, so he would be picking songs here and there with, with Peter and the band. After that, it's really about, are you a band member? Meaning them. How's the aesthetic of your chemistry being able to not 
insist, but integrate right into the fabric of being in a band. And that's what I would always look out for. And I think that's been the, the our success has been absolute expression with a mirror of sorts, but someone who's really listening to and having an empathy with what am I dealing with here, especially later on when we became very much five separate expressive people, that whoever it was, you have to look back on and give them huge amounts of credit as being some form of a social director more than an artistic director. And I lost all my hair because I was both, but. <laughs> <laughs> now, would you say, uh, when you say five separate distinct beings, there was a period when they weren't, they were a unit and they were a unit during what period? And what was that like? And what, what changed that musically? Well, Fleetwood Mac was already a stage that existed and Fleetwood Mac was always about change so that you were accepted for who you were. Anyone uh, should express themselves. You know, when I look back on it, that's in a naive way what I must have understood, uh, especially being a drummer when you go, well, what the hell am I going to do if I don't have a front line and people that are delivering the play, you know, uh, not to diminish who I am and what I am, but that was my function probably more than anything. So they came as different characters walking on that stage. And if you see and hear the music, you go, none of it makes any sense. None of them were clones of anyone. They were all completely uh, their own entity. So what they had to learn was to be in a band. Everyone was extremely unhappy emotionally and on the making of rumors. And Lindsay's sitting on the floor and it's, it's, it's tough. You know, no one ever intended to leave or anything. But one time I remember sitting in the studio at the record plant with Lindsay and he just turned around and said, oh, I don't know whether I can do this. You know, it's just, you know, we're in transition here. And his interpretation was, can I be in a band? Can I be in a band? Especially with the pressure of, is this what it's like being in a band? You're emotionally exposed and everyone was. We were all in you know, I'm drifting into the area where we, we promised we wouldn't go. But so I, I just sat with him and he was playing a sitar. I remember it distinctly. And I said, then you must go. If it's self-preservation, don't destroy that. Don't destroy yourself because of the play, in essence. Peter Green. Yeah. And I said, I don't have any ultimate apart from if it's that bad, then you have to go. And then I segued and I said, this is what it is. Everything is a compromise when you're walking on a stage and sharing that, that stage. And this is that stage. And I'm not forcing you. I'd be extremely sad if halfway through an album you just can't finish it out. And he didn't say much. He just said, I understand. And he stayed. A guy once said to me, and he was much younger than me, and this is maybe like 10 years ago. I was in my early 50s. And it was in the lines of like advice to him for his career. And I said, well, do you really want like the cold, hard, unvarnished? You want it with the bark on or the bark off? Yeah. And I said, if you want it with the bark on, then don't get married till you're 40. Don't have any kids till you're 40. Give yourself, not just your 20s, but your 30s. Give this everything you have. If you want to uh -huh. be an actor with a real 
prime, if you want to be Leo DiCaprio, you want to be a guy who's like at the top of the pile and making movies with the best directors, the best scripts, everything's the best, the budgets, the release dates, everything. If you want to surf that wave all the way to the shore, then right. you have to make this the most important thing in your life. Do you find that that was true for you as well? I think in retrospect, we didn't know because you're, you're in it, but, but as a comment, right. I think it's entirely correct and, and, and proven out in no uncertain terms, uh, time and time and time and time and time and time again. Uh, are there miracles that slip through and survive like a built-in version of what you've just said in terms of advice? Yeah, few and far between. It really uh, puts a, a wall that you don't even realize that you're putting up where you're so into what you're doing that people get left out and feel pushed away. So ideally, I think your, your advice is entirely correct. But that advice is always almost in retrospect for anyone. Yeah, it's always but, hindsight. But, but, it's always, but I'm wondering also, well, it, it, you're in a band with three men. I mean, as, as Sleepwood Mac was, is most renowned for, it's three men and two women. And neither one of those women has children. Correct. Were they people that they were going through life and they were like, well, we're going to get to that. And the next, you know, they turned around and they were like, wow, 25 years went by like nothing. You know, I, I would say if either Chris or, or Stevie, I feel comfortable in this conversation saying there is no doubt that they made that decision to dedicate their lives to their careers with flashes of what if. But I think both of these ladies uh, would have no problem saying that that was the order of the a conscious choice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Now, when people ask me about my drug use, I say that I snorted a line of cocaine from here to Saturn. Then we did a line of cocaine on the rings of Saturn. Mm -hmm. And then we took it home with another line. Oh, of I've got you beat for sure. You... <laughs> <laughs> is that possible? No, is that I, even possible? I think your, your description is that actually more far reaching than mine, a planetary version. But uh, my version of that would be, and, I, and I've never lived it down, but it, you know, I, I have no problem at all, uh, apart from don't go there. And, and then you have the war stories, which this is sort of tending to be. And I, I, I'll preface it by saying war stories are fine, but there's a time and place and what can you learn from them uh, would be my little lesson for anyone listening. So having said that, my uh, transgression was, uh, which was some awful interview I did, and I said, well, I, one time, you know, I was in the studio and, and I'm talking about my, well, how much coke do you think I've ever done? This was like in our private world. And we measured out a good semi-fat line of cocaine and then duplicated it. And then X amount of years. Uh, so in the last something, something amount of years, we actually worked it out. Instead of cutting tape and editing uh, the song together, uh, we got into a transgression of actually working out probably about how long would that line be. And it was seven miles long, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and I never lived that down. And years, always, especially in England, where they, they love all that terrible stuff. And I have to sit there, not talking about, if in you, it would be like someone talking about something in your life versus the play I'm in or the script I've just written or the book I've just, you know. And you go, and you go like, well, live with it because you opened your mouth in the first place all those years ago. And mine would be one of probably quite a few transgressions in terms of, of that. But comedically, so I, I still get asked, you know, was it really seven miles long? And I look 
down to my sure. trouser and go, go well, that. I wished. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm 35 years sober. I got sober a long time ago in LA. For you, did you feel that when that stopped, because for me, when it stopped, there were good things, but there were also bad things because you're forced to confront everything. You know, if you are, if you go out in the world and you don't drink and you don't take drugs, I mean, I'm yeah. not commenting on you, but speaking for myself, you are kind of unarmored and you need to go yeah. out and face the world and you need to resolve all your problems. You can't sit in the problem anymore. You got to resolve things and confront things and clean up the mess and so forth. And I'm yeah. wondering for you, what happened to you musically once you stopped abusing yourself? Well, I still drink, but the marching powder was a massive part of, of my life for probably way over 20 years. God, Just, that's a long time. I, I don't even know. I, it's a fucking miracle. Yeah, that's, so, a, that's a long time to have that, and, that, that problem. Oh, yeah. I was known as the king of toot, and everyone would always know that I would, wouldn't hoard it. you know. And then I, I did hit a brick wall. And it was like slow motion. And my mother, Biddy, uh, would always say, because they're hugely supportive, almost blindly supportive, oh, it's no problem at all. Whenever he wants to stop, he can stop it. You know, all those catchphrases. And I always sort of uh, thought that I could. And then uh, I hit a brick wall, literally, and someone that I shared my life with said, I'm, I'm done. I, I can't be around this anymore. And I said, please don't go. Leave me alone for two days. And that's what I did. And never touched the stuff since. Hmm. That's a Overnight. Miracle. That's a miracle. Would, well, it, it's divine intervention, but it's also misplaced in terms of that that's when I probably should have gone into a program and, and found out what you touched on. What were those reasons? And I, I've done that since a couple of times with drink and had a sort of a, a wake-up call, and I just thought it was fun. I was around people telling me literally countless horror stories of what had happened to them, especially when they were children and young, and I, I had no support and, and all sorts of terrible things. And I just said, I feel so terrible because I just thought it was fun until it, it wasn't, and I still actually haven't found the key of what was that? My parents didn't drink unduly, had an incredible supportive childhood. But that brick wall was, was, was it insecurity about being in public, maybe? Oh, did, I, th I did think being there were out of there that. and being famous. No, this, and, I mean, Fleetwood Mac. I mean, this music was coming out of every clamshell on the beach for a while. Yeah. Every horse in the park was singing, you can go your own way. Yeah. You know, it was like this music was everywhere. It was, everywhere. Yeah. There were so many songs that were just washing over you. It was like in the air all the time. Was that unsettling for you, fame and all that attention? Did you need to medicate no. yourself to get through that period? I, I would say immediately you noticed how quickly I went, no. <laughs> but I do get nervous about performing. If someone said, make a speech and read the speech to 3,000 people, I would be really put upon. Go out on stage and just talk to someone I love. Not even a question. I know people around me that all of the trimmings of, of what you just mentioned would be, was that something that freaked you out? I have to say no, because of the way I was brought up. It was just fantastic. 
and and fun and and but actually performing and delivering certain aspects i would have to say did bring out a fundamental some form of academic calling out that you don't know quite what you're doing and therefore you're shitting yourself and therefore i know for a fact for years and i i played sober for 15 years the real truth is i didn't enjoy it so when i play now i have one bottle of red wine and i'm, I'm fairly well behaved and without it i can't even breathe and i i've i've tried hypnosis i've tried everything known to mankind to get over it and breathing and i had a guy like med, uh, meditating with me on the road when i really 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 didn't drink all i can say is that instead of enjoying myself i had my road manager with a brown paper bag so i could breathe into it to stop myself getting high anxiety i don't enjoy it and it's because of the element which is nothing to do with fame and fortune it's actually who are you what are you in the moment and being called out like being in the class that i i didn't i didn't know mcfleetwood subscribe to here's the thing on the iheart radio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts while you're there leave us a review i really appreciate it few bands have managed to survive longer than fleetwood mac when we return, the surprising resurgence of interest in the band's 1977 album, Rumors. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including... Actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. It's the same kind of story that seems to come down from long ago. That's the song Hypnotized, recorded during the Bob Welch era of Fleetwood Mac. Mick Fleetwood has been the drummer of Fleetwood Mac for more than 50 years. And as there's usually one person in every long-lasting band that brings them back together, I asked, who was that person for Fleetwood Mac? It would be me, and and that was and, and is and has been my function. I imaged it a while ago not not any big deal but i'm going like you know because i don't write i don't sing although i'm enjoying doing some of that now which is interesting really actually interesting to be able to make a a private fool of yourself uh with no pressure i said i think my story would be and i'm really happy about it and, and quietly proud of it that my function was that i drifted into it i learned it and me and John always wanted to have a band to be in. Why wouldn't you? And I said, I think that story is my song. Your musical catalog contains so many beautiful songs. It's beautiful music. Yeah. And the poetry is beautiful and the lyrics. It still moves you to this day. Yeah. I take that as a, a lovely compliment for, on behalf of, of all of us in, in this crazy band, and, and thank you. And I think there is sometimes almost the light-hearted part of Fleetwood Mac or whatever word one wants to use, the sort of the poppy part of it, was always balanced out by a, a form of reveal, a, a form of very often some romance of, of sadness and entertaining that type of dialogue would be for me, is is Songbird. And there, of course, are others. But I, I remember when Chris wrote that. And I, I actually spoke very recently to her about it. Uh, we just drifted into a conversation, and she totally remembered. And I went, Chris, this is like Edith Piaf on a stage alone. And she was in the studio at the record plant. And I said, this needs to be lonely. We should record it in an empty theater, not in a shag carpet studio. Let's go and do that. And we did. And we went to college over in Berkeley and recorded that song. As the imaging of it was so devastating to me, I said, you are alone. You are alone playing this lovely, lovely song. And it should be all of that. 
And that's exactly what we did. It was it was the most pregnant, sweet moment around a song that I can tell in our short conversation. Some, including Stevie Nicks, and, and uh, we read about Dylan's going to sell his catalog, and David Crosby's getting ready to sell his catalog. And I guess in this COVID era and beyond, in the age of streaming music, people are seeing the sources of revenue dry up. Uh, certainly, some of yeah. these people are older. They're not, you know they're not selling their catalog, and they're in their thirties or whatever. But uh, what do you think of that? I think it's great. It's, I'm sure it's not for everyone or whatever, but uh, uh, I think the circumstances has triggered so many things. This would be one of them. I think those decisions may or may not have been made uh, anyhow. Who's to say? Why not? Yeah. And and a body of work that is to be, quite frankly, translated into all sorts of lovely things for these people, whatever that might be, because the people you're talking about, they certainly don't need any money <laughs> for I the most it. part. But no, I, well, I say, I, let's say we doubt it. So it it becomes something uh, that will grow into all sorts of other things, one would imagine, um, what they might be is their business, you know. And one of the things, I think, is family. I think a lot of people are handing down to family ahead of time versus, you know, people picking through when you're, God forbid, whenever that moment comes. And to see uh, family enjoying stuff that can be allocated before you do pop off. So if I'm not mistaken, Rumors is a best-selling album again now as the direct result of some guy on a skateboard swigging down cranberry juice. What did you think... <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of when you first came across the TikTok phenomenon right. that has occurred? Well, I know him as Nathan. His online uh, name is Dogface. And it is quite unbelievable. And all hell was breaking loose because he made a decision one day to, to do his thing. It happened in the most charming way. And then someone said, well, would you... Would you? I said, well, I can't get on a skateboard, so I, I hung myself off the back of a, of a golf cart and did the thing. And the next thing I know, we're all on you know, half-time sports programs and God knows what else. Oh, my God. His whole life has, has changed. Uh, and I actually loved it because it was so not thought of. One of the lovely things I was able to say on a, a Zoom call, he was doing an interview in England with some very upstanding BBC chap, and I, he had no idea I was going to come on the Zoom call. So that's when I first met him, you know, face to face. And then his family came on, they sang songs to me and stuff. And I said, let me tell you, Nathan, Fleetwood Mac owes you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's been a, a fantastic uh, moment in time that, that went AWOL and typical Fleetwood Mac, just when you, you think, you know, we've survived. We've been really lucky, you know, in so many, some of the things we've touched on in our talk, where against hopeless odds, we've prevailed. And I, I always joke about, especially uh, with Lindsey Buckingham, years ago, I used to sit with him and go like, we are the, the most abused rock and roll franchise in the world, meaning we've never capitalized on anything, really. We're all idiots. <laughs> so, but it's sort of good. And, and we're still here. It's unbelievable. Well, I mean... Uh, again, I say this because it's easy, and that is you're still here and, and people are picking songs of yours to soundtrack their kind of playfulness yeah. on TikTok and so forth because the music is great. 
I mean, you and you're going yeah. back to hypnotized and Welsh. I love hypnotized. I love mystery to me. I love, oh, I love those early records. I play them to death. I love everything Amen. you guys. And then solo acts, Christia, you know, Stevie solo albums, blah, blah, blah. I, I, I love it yeah. all. But I mean, you, you, you live in people's hearts because the music is that good. You guys made the, some of the greatest music in the history of, of the music business. Thank you so much. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. And, and I remember something uh, my father said, and it, it seems to really apply to a lot of the storytelling about this funny life and most certainly Fleetwood Mac and the, the fact that there have been all sorts of ups and downs and around the mulberry bush and pain and a lot of happiness as well. My dad would always say, one thing, Mick, I can tell you, it's all been worth a damn. And, and hearing you say that about the music makes me feel that it's all been worth a damn, and thank you. Oh, lots of love to you. And my love to you, Mick Fleetwood. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. Summer's hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.